0: Leviticus 23 is looking at the Jewish festivals that were instituted as a part of the Levitical law. So keep in mind that all of these are law. In the same way that all of the sacrifices were law, God puts times on their calendar to celebrate. And every culture has its own way of calling attention to special days or holy days. Um, these feasts are not like ours in that most of the cultural feasts that we have remember a past event. Some of these festivals look forward to future events that haven't happened yet but will when they go in the land, but there are seven different appointed festivals that summarize what God has done in bringing them out of Egypt, what he was doing at that moment, and what he's going to do when he brings them into the land. Um, a couple big ideas just to keep in mind here. Number one is every one of these was an interruption to daily life. That meant no matter what you were doing, you were commanded to stop it. No matter what was going on, because this is going to take precedence. The second thing is that every single one of these is a direct foreshadow of something fulfilled by Jesus, who is now the ultimate festival. And. I guess the third thing, and we can, this is where we can dialogue more, is thinking through why we celebrate what we celebrate and how to redeem cultural celebrations with something more than just a party for the sake of having a party. So, seven different festivals. The first one in uh, chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, and on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. So, while the Sabbath is not technically one of the feasts, it's included in this list as a celebration. So, what is Sabbath a celebration of? And again, think context where the Jews are at this point in the wilderness. What is Sabbath a celebration of? God's presence and rest from the work they've done. Okay, so God's presence and rest from the work they've done? Accomplishment? What kind? I mean, like, all the work they did during the week. Okay, so a, a sense of accomplishment from all the work that they put in. So when they said the work is done, the work was done, right? Mm-hmm. What else? Celebrating creation. How so? Um, they are in currently in God's creation. He also rested. On the seventh day, to just kind of sit back and appreciate all of the beauty yeah. around them? So six days of work, and on the seventh day, there was a day of rest. And that's to dedicate it to God. Yeah. No matter what happened the other days, this was a day that was set aside specifically as a, it's called a holy convocation. That is, God, this is your day that I'm giving to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Basically, the big idea is you need to remember when you didn't have the option to not work. Don't forget when you were a slave, and it would have been nice to have one day out of seven off. Now you're going to remember this because you're no longer in slavery. Now you are going to be going into the land where there's going to be a measure of freedom that you haven't previously known. And the implication behind that is that if God, who doesn't need to rest, need to rest, chooses to rest on the seventh day, but you can't press pause on what's important in your life, That's a sure sign you're thinking way too highly of whatever it is you think you have going on. God doesn't need to rest and chooses to. You who need to rest but don't choose to, you're thinking way too highly of yourself. And I guarantee there's nothing you have going on that is that important. And so this is something that is still incredibly important today. So, again, Sabbath comes up so often in the Bible— This isn't like the prayer of Jabez and some rando, obscure scripture from 2 Chronicles that appears only once, this guy Jabez, and here's his prayer. Okay. Like, Sabbath is a major theme. It's a commandment. And it's the only commandment with promise. And it's the commandment that if you break it, there's going to be consequences. Why do you think God is so concerned about this one over everything else? What makes this one... The bedrock of all the rest. Maybe it proves your trust in the Lord. Okay, proves your trust in the Lord. It also seems like it helps you for all the other commandments. Yeah. yeah, it helps you perform all the other because then you're coming from them from a place of rest. What, what else? I'll tell you we're gonna we're gonna get moving on I, I could I could spend the whole night right here because this has been a dominant theme of what God has done in my life in the last decade as I have gotten older in tearing down all the things I thought I was staying up late working for all the things that I thought if I could only just get this one more email out if only I can finish up this one more lesson if only I can just get this done then I'll have rest and as I looked back over a, a whole there was a whole stretch of like two years where I would put the kids to bed I would put my wife to bed and I'd get right back at it because after all there's work to be done and it's not going to stop because I do so and he took away everything that I was propping myself up with so I could see what I was using that work as an excuse to run from um, and there was so much health That came out of that this really is the bedrock of everything and so I just want to suggest to you especially here in Los Angeles you have to move from thinking about work as project based to time based which is really hard in a lot of the industries that make up Los Angeles But if you are thinking of rest as something after this project, after this next shoot, after this next job, after this next callback, then you're never going to rest. You'll never find time to rest. And there will always be something else, rather than choosing a set period where regardless of what goes on, I am done for the day right now, and I am going to trust God with the consequences. And so that means... I have gotten the phone call of like, hey, I had asked you to do this by this time. Could you get that done? No, I couldn't. I'm so sorry. But I chose to rest instead. I will have it for you first thing on Monday, but I'm not going to be stopping what I'm doing right now to get that done. There's a greater dependency and trust that it displays on who God is that if he says this is what's best for us, this is what's best for us. And there is a greater health and quality of life that just comes from that. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, right? And Hebrews 4 shows that there is a future rest because of Jesus that we are practicing one day a week as we enter into it. So that's the first celebration. The second one in verse 4 through 8 is the Passover. The first celebration, Sabbath was celebrating rest, then the second feast celebrates redemption. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, in verse 4, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed to them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So every year, the people were to celebrate the most important thing that God had done for them, which was free them from slavery and bring them out of Egypt. And they were to remember the Lord's Passover so that they, every year, would have a reminder that they weren't free people after being enslaved for centuries because of Moses' diplomatic strength, or because of a political uprising, or because... God just ended up taking down the nation. They were free because of God directly intervening on their behalf, and then they were to celebrate this Passover feast. And it says that part of this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a reminder that they had to leave so quickly, there was no time to even bake food to bring with them. So they had to take the, the yeast that was unleavened with them, and as they... in. When they were in in Egypt removed any leaven from their house in later times, leaven became associated with what? Sin. 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 So Paul will use that illustration in 1 Corinthians that that remove all of the, the leaven of sin from your life. And so part of this celebration is an intentional removing of sin from their lives and remembering what God had done. Um... In the New Testament, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was specifically calling Jesus the Passover Lamb. He himself is the finished work of this Passover. So we're not saved from sin by Christ our teacher. We're saved by Christ our substitute. We're saved because he became that unblemished, perfect, spotless, Passover lamb on our behalf. Um, the same hour that the Passover lambs were being butchered in the temple for that Passover, Jesus was on the cross. So there is an intentional parallel that he that the gospel accounts are drawing <coughs> attention to with all of that. Question is: what might it look like for us to celebrate redemption? We may or may not celebrate Passover, but it's never a bad idea to have set days where we say, what we're doing right now is celebrating this. What are some of those ways that we might celebrate redemption? And not in a weird way, in a way that fits naturally into the rhythm of our lives today. Being gratitude. Okay. Having having a a heart of gratitude for what God's done. What are some things that we might be able to practice to be reminded of that gratitude? Serving others. Okay, serving others. Communion. Communion, yeah. Communion is one of those things where familiarity can breed contempt but absence can also make the heart grow fonder so there's a way to infuse new meaning in the communion celebration where that is a time that you are marking aside how else what do we currently have on the church calendar to remember redemption good friday and easter is a huge part of the church calendar if there's any celebration worth going all out for that's the central one for the church not christmas but easter The third feast in verse 9 through 11 is the Feast of the first fruits. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, When you come into the land I'm giving and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The first feast is celebrating rest. The second feast is celebrating um, redemption. The third feast is celebrating God's provision. That's the feast of the first fruits. This anticipated the time that God would bring his people into the land. And before they could enjoy that first harvest from the new land, they were to give God the first fruits of anything that they got. This was a way of remembering they were not the ones responsible for what they had to eat and live on and enjoy. God himself was, so God gets the best. Um, and this was sacrificed in verse 13 along with a perfect male lamb. The, the idea of generosity is not specifically religious. The Jews didn't invent generosity. This is something that had been common in ancient cultures and <laughs> sacrificing to their gods. But God tells his people that they are to celebrate everything that they have as coming from him, not just what that particular deity gave to that people, but as the giver of all of those things. And so instead of spending what they needed and then giving God the leftovers, their lives were to be intentionally backwards. You give God first, and then you spend what's left over. And just think about how difficult that is for a second because we live in one of the most opulent cultures on planet Earth. Like, Mm -hmm. America occupies 20% of the world's landmass, and we consume 80% of the world's resources. So if there's ever been a people, a country, a nation, that doesn't know when to say enough is enough, it's us. (laughs) And so our idea is, well, i got to raise that work. That means I have more money to spend, and maybe more money to give. God flips that backwards and says the first thing you're doing before you're even asking what you get to keep for yourself is you're planning what are the first fruits here that I give to God because of the different forms our paychecks come in you might have to be creative with what that looks like for you it's not necessarily the same for everybody but there's always an intentional decision that the first of what I get here is going to belong to the Lord so my family lived in Mexico for many years, and we lived in a little little village called the Valle de las Palmas. And every year at Christmas Eve, all of our neighbors in this largely agrarian society would bring their first fruits to the celebration. But those first fruits were, you know, massive pieces of meat or watermelons or crops or things like that. To them, the notion of tithing money was not familiar. They had money, but it wasn't... They didn't consider that their first fruits. They considered what they grew with their hands, their livelihood, that was their first fruits. And so they made an intentional decision to bring the choicest parts of the meat to the celebration for everybody else, which is the exact spirit of this. It's not the amount, it's not how you do it, it, it is the, the heart behind celebrating God's provision. So that's the feast of the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits from the dead. And so because of his sacrifice, we are accepted by God in the same way that the Jews were accepted by celebrating this feast. That's what it says in verse 11, that you may be accepted before the Lord. So Jesus becomes the promise of God's provision. He is the first fruit who has gone before, and he is the one who has been that offering for the Lord. The question then is what, is, what What are some ways that might look like for us? How might we also celebrate God's provision? Let's just take tithing off the table. Let's have a more creative conversation than that. Because then we're going to have to talk about percentages, and then you have to find out that the Old Testament tithe is like 37%. Then you're not going to give anything, and then you're going to... Never mind, <laughs> we're not even going down that path. <laughs> take, take tithing out of it. What are some ways to celebrate and truly, deeply recognize everything that I have at this moment is from God? I think sharing everything we have with people as if it's not ours, you know, it's from God, but just keeping all of our stuff and things with open hands to give and share. Keeping all of our possession with open hands to share. Did anybody here grow up in like a plastic house where your parents like put sheet covers over everything and if someone got too close they freaked out? Yeah, my mother. Did. Okay. We have we 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 know a couple people who grew up in those kind of homes where like you couldn't touch anything. Everything had to be kept pristine. And my wife came from something like that, so she went to the opposite extreme. And when we got married, she said, here's the deal. We are never gonna buy furniture that's so expensive that if it gets ruined, we're gonna be really sorry about it. And that was just kind of the deal going into it, like, that's what it's here for. And then when we have four kids, so everything gets trashed with four kids, and so something breaks, it's like, all right, well, that's what it was here for, to be sat on, to be jumped on even, to be played on, like, all right, God will provide something else too. What else? What are some other ways to celebrate provision? I guess how you choose to spend your time and prioritize that, so for example, If you have two options, you know, maybe like going to a Bible study or something else, I do think that the way you choose to spend your time is an indication of how, you know, high God is on your list of priority. Yeah, Yeah, what you give your energy to, we all have the same twenty four hour period. So to say that God hasn't me hasn't given me enough time to be obedient to him is to indict God in your own sinfulness, which makes it like doubly (laughs) what else you can use your talents to serve someone yeah, using the gifts that God's given you for the benefit of others Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, all of these are ways that we can intentionally remember I would not have this gift I would not have this time I would not have this whatever it is had it not been for the Lord who provided that opportunity. I wouldn't have the job I had if I didn't have the health to be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to earn this income if I had not been given a certain measure of intellectual capacity to be able to do that, physical capacity to be able to do that. For those of you who are in the public sphere, emotional capacity to be able to care for others, whatever it might be, that's just a recognition that it all comes from God. So that's the third feast. The fourth feast is the Feast of Weeks in verse 15 and 16. This celebrates the giving of the law. So it says you shall count seven full weeks from the day after that Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering from the Feast of Passover. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. me just stop there for a second. Here's the really cool thing about having someone walk you through Leviticus. This is exactly the kind of stuff that just makes your eyelids get heavier and heavier as you're trying to read it in your Bible reading. And you're like, I don't care. And I don't know why I should care. And I'm super thankful that there are other people who do care enough where they've spent the time doing the exegesis on this. It's like, oh, That's good. That's something I can get behind. But when I just read 50 days after, seven weeks, like, cool, I guess that's Old Testament, so it doesn't matter much to me. What happened 50 days after the Passover? The the Jews are gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. They've been freed from Egypt. 50 days after that Passover, what does God give them on Mount Sinai? He gives them the law. So... This signaled the end of the previous feast. The previous feast celebrating redemption, this celebrating the giving of God's law. And this was the day that God revealed himself to the people and showed them how he intended to govern them. So 50 days after, he gives them the law and he's telling them right now at this point, every year after the Passover, you're to remember, you're to commemorate this Giving of the law. There's something interesting, too, um, that I, it's, a, it's a, a new term I heard uh, from another woman. Uh, we had both lost siblings fairly recently, and uh, she called it body memory. And she talks about every year in October, when her kid brother died, it's like it comes back up all over again. It's like her body remembers that time of year, and it comes back up. And it was incredibly helpful for me because I lost my brother in October a couple of years ago and there's something about getting into fall that just is a funk now. Mm. And just thinking like, oh, your body remembers this. So think (coughs) about God using that as a framework of, remember what happened this time last year? Like, there's something important to recognizing annually Something major that happened in your life. And so he's calling their attention. Remember when I didn't leave you hanging on how life was supposed to look in this new land. And consider after that long in slavery, they had no clue how to govern themselves. They were slaves under masters for so long. What does it even mean to follow God? Like we know these old prayers that were passed down. We know these old stories, but... We've been in slavery for four generations, so that was my great-great-great-great-great-grandpappy who told me those stories. I haven't seen God since then. These people are completely bereft of any direction, and then God steps in and says, I will tell you exactly how you're to govern your life. It's a big deal, right? Now, in the New Testament, the Feast of Weeks is called the Feast of Pentecost, and Pentecost means 50, and so... Fifty days after the first Passover celebration, the Jews are gathered together in the upper room, and they are there celebrating the Feast of Weeks. And so, they're there celebrating the law. So, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's people are gathered remembering the law that was given. If ever there was a time for God to give a new covenant law, like the new law that would govern their lives— That would have been the time. But instead, what does God send? His Spirit. So there's a whole new meaning of that celebration in the New Testament where it's no longer a celebration of the law. It's now a celebration of the Spirit that's the fulfillment of that law. The law that was pointing them forward to a future fulfillment has now met its fulfillment in Jesus, and the Spirit as the seal of that salvation now indwells all of those early disciples. That's a pretty powerful festival to remember. Not only did God give our people the law to govern it, when we were lost, the man that we had put all of our chips on is dead now. What do we do next? That's why they're gathered together in the upper room. They have no clue what they're supposed to do after Jesus is gone. All they know is that now he's no longer here. He said it would be better for them if he wasn't here, but it sure doesn't feel like that. So what do we have? And then God goes ahead and gives the Spirit. Now, an important part of remembering that feast of the law versus the Spirit is in verse 22. And it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall, this is, this is the same Feast of weeks you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So he's reminding them that holiness and social responsibility aren't at odds with each other. They they must go together. And he's saying, even in the middle of this major celebration, where you are personally thankful for what God has done for you, you are to have an eye on the sojourner and the outcast and the foreigner who's coming into your field to make sure that they're provided for. You can't offer God your gifts on the altar while neglecting your brother. It's an inappropriate way to show thankfulness to God while remaining indifferent to everybody else around us. So even that, he builds into this celebration. Basically saying, as you celebrate all that I've given you, leave an extra seat at that table. Like, don't be so hung up on who's here and who's not. There's always room for more. So that's the fourth feast, celebrating rest, celebrating redemption, celebrating provision, celebrating the law, and then later celebrating the spirit. The fifth feast is the feast of trumpets in verse 23 and 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying in the seventh month on the first day, you shall observe a day of solemn rest a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. The Feast of Trumpets was celebrating second chances. So does anyone know what the Feast of Trumpets is called on the Jewish calendar today? Rosh Hashanah. Hashanah. So it is essentially their new year. it's, It's a way of marking... Um, a day of new beginnings, a day where God's mercy is new, and for this new year, God is going to come to us in a fresh way. So it's similar to our New Year celebration without the drunkenness, pretty much, but that is a day on their calendar remembering everything that God God had done. Now, it's called the Feast of Trumpets because throughout Scripture, trumpets are blown to denote importance to something, like Imagine the sound of that many horns going off at once. It's going to grab your attention and remind you something important is happening right now. All throughout scripture, we see trumpets blown at times like this. And it's fitting that this feast would be to celebrate the God of second chances after our continual unfaithfulness in light of his goodness towards us. It's fitting that this is commemorated by blowing a trumpet because in Revelation we see a final trumpet calling God's people together at last in the same way for that final second chance in the second coming the second advent when when he returns Um, what are some ways that we might celebrate second chances what are some of the ways again this is not likely to make its way as a feast on your calendar maybe it would be But what are some ways we can... Let me ask a different question. We'll get to that. How could we redeem the current practice of New Year's Eve and turn it into something that is more hopeful than just resolutions that you know are going to be gone by February? Prayer. Okay, by prayer and... Recognizing that unless God is the one who builds this year, there's nothing that we're doing that matters much. Just like look, maybe looking back at the previous year and seeing what, remembering what God has done. Yeah, so looking back over that last year, remembering what God has done, and maybe it's just looking back over that last year and recounting all the loss and all the grief and all of the dashed hopes and bringing that before the Lord and saying, this sucks right now, but you know this. And it hurts, and that's okay, because you're still the God over this. So giving him the grief as well as the joy. What else? I think it's kind of silly to celebrate New Year's. Like, if I'm thinking of a parallel. Like, nobody... Real, I mean... I guess I have done this before, but sit at home alone on New Year's Eve—it's like very uncommon. You want to like get together with your friends. So I guess in the in the context like you're saying, like getting together with friends where we can actually talk about the past year together and maybe like point out things that we've seen, encouragements or exhortations or areas we see we need to grow. Like, mean, yeah, I've never done that, but that sounds super cool. Yeah, and that's a that's a super cool way to do it with community as well. Yeah, people who know you and have done. Yeah. Like Yeah, so we would do this for the first couple years of our church plant when it was, you know, all of 20 people or whatever. We would have New Year's at our place and we would have everybody who, who wanted to come over. And we would take the first part of the night and we would remember all the good from that year and we would talk about all of the good. Then we would talk about all of the bad and all of the things that we wish we could take back or hadn't happened, all of those. And then we spent some time in prayer and brought it before the Lord. And then we had, uh, at that point, we had a bartender in the church who would teach us how to mix all these fun drinks. And so, like, we'd mix <laughs> drinks, and then we watched the ball drop. And it was like, it's, it was a great celebration. It was a wonderful time together, being with God's people, remembering all the good and the bad, and then giving that up to Him, and then just simply enjoying each other's company and having that with, without, like, this heavy burden of making it more spiritual than we thought it should be, like, mm-hmm. We're just going to enjoy God and each other tonight. So that is celebrating second chances. I got one that seems like it would be kind of, I mean, Try to be saved or to be baptized. I mean, those are definitely second chances. Absolutely. Mm. Now, that's a cool idea if you have an opportunity as a new believer to baptize someone on New Year's Eve. like that is- That's a pretty cool commemoration of new life right there. Mm-hmm. That might make you doubly-holy, I'm not sure. <laughs> that's that's a great idea. Oh, man.
1: And then cocktails. Yes.
0: Then yeah. Cocktails. That's so good. I love that. That's so good. All right, that's the fifth festival. The sixth is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is spelled out in greater detail in Chapter 16. So for those of you who are caught up, you remember Chapter 16, the whole chapter is about this one festival. This is the the truncated version in verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Now, this is important because in between the Feast of Second Chances and then the Feast of Booths, which is the last one which celebrates joy, there is this intentionally somber festival. There are rhythms that God builds into the life of his people of both fasting and feasting. And there is ought not to be an overemphasis of one or the other. We don't overemphasize feasting, because after all, we're in Christ, so everything's permissible and it's just party all the time. Nor do we overemphasize fasting, thinking that greater asceticism is going to lead to greater godliness. They're both right and good and appropriate in different seasons. The Day of Atonement, celebrating forgiveness, is intentionally a time where it says to afflict themselves. Now, It looks different for us because now Jesus, who was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted on our behalf, has wrapped that up and taken that from us. But through this day in the Old Testament, uh, this was a whole day of unique rituals where visually the people would see what it looked like for their sin to be removed. So after taking that time of rest and prayer they would have these goats that the priest would bring into them. And there would be these two goats. And they would cast lots for the goats. The fate of one of the goat was to be the scapegoat. And so they would lay their hands on the goat's horn and symbolically transfer the sin of the people onto this goat, and they would kill that goat. The other goat they would release into the wilderness, never to return again. Both of which are a perfect fulfillment of Christ, both Christ in the wilderness In Matthew 4, and then Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. Um, The cool thing about this is without possibly being aware of it, the Israelites acted out every year the life and death of Christ, who would take the sin of the entire world on himself, who would be afflicted on their behalf, who would be the perfect offering to the Lord, who would be the fulfillment of all of those things, so that they could celebrate forgiveness. And it's probably somewhat impossible for us to consider how different it must have been coming out of the Old Testament sacrificial system to appreciate the finished work of Jesus. Because your immediate thought is, there's got to be something more I have to do. Like, shouldn't this be bloodier? Shouldn't this require more from me? Shouldn't this require me afflicting myself? Shouldn't I feel bad enough for my sin? Shouldn't there be something I have to do to make this offering? And of course the answer is no, there's nothing you can do, which is what makes this one of the more difficult festivals to celebrate because there's nothing that you're really doing to celebrate it at all. It's what Jesus has already done on your behalf being gifted to you so that we can celebrate that forgiveness. Um, not going to go down that rabbit trail. The seventh festival. You're welcome. <laughs> the the feast of booths in verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be solemn rest and on the eighth day shall be solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows on the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. So, the festival or feast of Sabbath is celebrating what? Rest. 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 Celebrating the Passover is celebrating redemption. redemption. The festival of first fruits is celebrating. God's provision. The Feast of Trumpets is celebrating second chances. The Day of Atonement celebrates... And this very last one, the Feast of Booths, is to celebrate joy. So, when seriously, ain't no party like an Old Testament party. Old Testament parties don't stop. God says, we're going to throw a party... And this party is going to be so epic, you're going to need a day of rest on the front end before we even begin. And then you're going to need a day of rest on the back end to recuperate before you go your way. So God says, I'll tell you what, why don't you make it an even seven and block out the whole week? And this is going to be celebrating joy. Now, why do you think God calls attention to this particular people having a festival where all they did was celebrate God's goodness and provision. Why them? They've never been able to do that before, They've never, ever been able to do that. Think of how much hardship this people has endured. Surely a party of that magnitude seems wasteful. Mm -hmm. Like, there's other things we should be doing. This isn't holy. There's other things we need to be doing. And God says, because of everything that you've been through, because of the years of slavery, because of being ripped out of your land and sent into a new one, because of the wandering and the, all, all of that, God says, there's going to be time just to celebrate all of the joy and the goodness. And he tells them, like, you're going to be pillaging the land. Take fruit of the trees, branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows, and just rejoice before the Lord. Remembering all of his goodness and he says if this is a statute forever throughout your generations You shall celebrate this on the seven days and all of the native Israelites shall dwell in booths So that your generations may know that I made the people in Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God so it's called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, because during these seven days, they would be camping as a reminder of where they were when God first instituted this. And when you have homes, camping for a week is pretty cool. Like, if you don't have a home, there's another word for that, because you're homeless. But <laughs> like when you have somewhere to go back to, throwing a party out in the wilderness for a week is a pretty cool time. So... He's putting this on the calendar for them to remember when they dwelled in those tabernacles and remembering what God did so this is the most near our current celebration of thanksgiving-ish but it's kind of the same idea there, there is an intentionality of goodness and joy in all of these things Um, And the idea is that by remembering what God did would keep them from complacency and self-sufficiency. They would remember, like, the only reason we can do this is because God himself first did it for us and rescued us and freed us. Now, in later times, a big deal was made out of water as a part of this festival. And they would celebrate, as Moses struck the rock... So water came out of the rock for His people, and they would wrap up that into this, uh, this feast. And in John chapter seven, in John chapter seven, Jesus goes to celebrate the feast of booths at the temple. And he is standing right by the pool of Siloam, where water would be brought for the festival every year as they're remembering it. And on the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he is intentionally using this Feast of Joy to point to himself. And he's saying, you're remembering all the good that God gave you. I'm the living water. I'm the eternal joy. I am the one that this whole festival was looking forward to. And so even in that, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that festival. And that's the last, that's the last festival, is celebrating joy. Um, now, if you're super spiritual, you'd be one of those people who say, well, we should be celebrating these things every day. Okay, yes, we should. <laughs> I get it. You make your argument and keep it. That's fine. You be holier than everybody else. However, I will say this yes, it is true every day, but we're also human beings with finite minds and limitations, and we don't live like it every day. So one of the consistent themes of the New Testament is not new teaching, but the word remember. Like, read the book of Titus with that word in mind. You'll see it come up over and over. I want to remind you, brothers, these aren't new things. These are things I know you know, and you know that I know, but let's remind each other of them. So I just want to remind you of these things. Yes, they're true all the time, but I would still make a case that it is worthwhile to have set times on our count. Which is largely what the liturgical church year sought to accomplish by having times of, you know, uh, Pentecost and Palm Sunday and Easter and Advent and all of the different seasons in the life of the church. Those are things that matter, and and there is a flow to the liturgical calendar. Um, that every year rehearses the gospel story with the birth of Christ and then ending with the death of Christ and the sending of the apostles on mission. And it it just every year you're using the church calendar to tell that story every year, every year. There's incredible value in taking time to at least recognize why this was put on the church calendar so that we don't forget these things. We're remembering joy, we're remembering provision, we're remembering goodness, remembering forgiveness, remembering redemption, remembering to rest, all of those things built into their civic life. So, as you go on in the rest of Leviticus, chapter 23 kind of stands alone as... um, Tonally, chapter 23 is different from anything that came before because, with the specificity of the the instruction, up until chapter 23, that's been reserved for like top shelf, God forgiving sins. You have to kill innocent animals that look just like this. Take the blood, apply it just like this. Dip this in that. Wave like he's giving very specific instructions to show his people. When you approach me, this is how you approach me. The total shift is now he uses that same kind of intentional particular language for these festivals to celebrate. And he's like, I want you to take celebrating what I've done as seriously as anything else. And there will be times of afflicting yourself, such as the Day of Atonement. And there will be festivals for a seven-day party. Take them seriously. These, these are things I'm giving to you for your good, when you go into the land, and of course the Jews did that until the time of Jesus, so. Anything else that we didn't cover, or questions, or pushback, or you want to fight me on the everyday we should remember all those things kind of thing? (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to belabor it then, game seven. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your people, and thank you for space to come together. It is always valuable and good when you condescend to be in the midst of your people. We have done nothing to deserve the fullness of your presence, and yet you have made that completely available to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we just want to recognize that that did not come from might, that did not come by strength, that did not come by wisdom. That has come because you have taken um, the wisdom of the world and made it foolish. That has come because you have made yourself weak on our behalf. You who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And we confess that had you not first done it, we would never be able to. And had you not given us your spirit, we would never be able to even celebrate these things. And so we thank you for it, and thank you for caring about how we spend our time and how we spend our energy in our lives. Attend to your people, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.